Good morning, church. I greet you in the precious and wonderful and marvelous name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jonathan, for such a great uh, introduction. Um, and thank you, worship team, for choosing such great songs that we could worship our Lord with. I couldn't have chosen a more perfect song than It Is Well With My Soul, um, uh, you know, that goes with, with this message so well. Um, Jonathan, I'm sorry about your accident in the week. Um, you know, if you're closing your eyes while riding your bike in prayer, please don't pray while driving your car. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> you know, um, we came to this, to, to this venue, and I must say it's very beautiful. Um, I never knew that we we're going to see a zebra and a, a, an elephant and, um, and such beautiful trees. And when you look at this, you just see wow, God's creation. And when you look at the beauty of God's creation, you just know how God exists, right? You can know that. Anyone in all the world, as they look at the beauty of God's creation, they can know that God exists. But you know, as you look at the creation, there's one thing that you won't know. You won't know that Jesus died for you on the cross. How do you know that? You know that from God's word, God's special revelation. There's no other way. And so that's why churches like this and churches like Midden Chapel, where I'm from, we preach faithfully from God's word because it's only through this special revelation of God through his word that we can come to know that Jesus died on the cross and that we can come to salvation. And so I'm honored that I have this opportunity to open God's word before you. And so let's pray as I do that, that God would speak powerfully through me, through his word, and that by its spirit, by his spirit, he would change us for his glory. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that, um, first of all, just for Pastor Jonathan, that um, though he was in an accident, Lord, uh, it could have been even much worse, but it wasn't. And you've already um, allowed that he would have surgery and uh, be on the mend again. We praise you for that. We pray, praise you for his testimony through trials and difficulties. And we think of many who are even going through different trials now at the moment. And we thank you that those give us an opportunity to grow our faith, to grow our love for you and our love for others, and to look forward to the return of our King Jesus. Lord, we pray that this morning as I preach that you would speak powerfully through me, that your word would guide clearly, Lord, and that hearts would be changed. Lord, we know that we can do nothing without your spirit. And so we pray for the empowering of your Holy Spirit to work in us, to mold us and shape us, to give me the words, Lord, that would please you and honor you and that would change people for your glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Let me ask a question as I start off. Who believes saving for the future is a good idea? You can put up your hand if you believe that. Okay? I'm wondering if I should ask you to, to put up your hand for this next question. Who does save for the future? An online article on businesstech.co.za says that more than a third of what they call middle-class South Africans are not putting any of their salary away for a retirement. And the majority, 61%, are allocating less than 10%, which they say is not enough. Now, most people, though, even though they might not save for the future, they'll say saving is a very good idea. Sometimes it's hard to do, but it doesn't detract from the fact that it's probably a good thing 
and a wise thing to do. Proverbs 13 verse 16 says, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool spreads out folly. Another translation says a wise man plans ahead and a fool doesn't and even boasts about that. We know that it's wise to plan for the future, to think about the future, because it's wise to have the end in mind. We know this so well, yet we seldom put it into practice, don't we? Saving is hard. But if we save, when we cash out, we can party or use the money wisely and put it to good use. Now, let me tell you, the sermon isn't about financial advice. You see, some of us, as Christians, we are the same in our faith. We don't think about the future. And specifically, we don't think about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We forget it in the way we look at the world. And then there's some of us, while we do think of the future, and we even think specifically about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't put it into practice. Or rather, we don't let the knowledge of this truth impact the way we think, the way we live, and the way we pray. We are like those saving for the future. Uh, sorry, we are like those who know that saving for the future is good, but we don't actually do it. And so I've titled the sermon, Keeping the End in Mind. That's not the end of the sermon. But rather the end which I'm talking to you about is the end of the age, the day of the Lord, the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've divided the sermon into three points. Uh, children, if you're taking notes, the first point is a right perspective, a steadfast, faithful perspective. That's a right perspective. The second, that's verse 1 to 5. The second, verse 6 to 10, is an eternal perspective, a perspective of Christ's return, God's judgment, and God's justice. And then the last point from verse 11 to 12, a perspective for prayer, a prayerful perspective of God's glory. You can turn your Bibles. I'll be preaching from, uh, sorry, I didn't even mention what I'm preaching on, uh, but it is in your, in your, in your notes. Um, I'll be preaching from 2 Thessalonians, uh, verse, um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. You can open your Bibles there if you want to follow as I read. From the LSB version translation. Greetings of grace and thanksgiving. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is only fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of each one of you all toward one another increases all the more. So that we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is plain. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give rest to you who are afflicted and to us as well at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our witness to you was believed. To this end also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill all your good pleasure for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter is addressed to the church in Thessalonica. Now some people will say Thessalonica, I say Thessalonica. But who are these people? Who are these believers in Thessalonica? And we can find out about who these believers are and who this church is in Acts chapter 17. Here we read of Paul and Silas on Paul's second missionary journey after experiencing a hard time in Philippi. Right? He, they get chased out of the city of Philippi. And eventually they come to the city of Thessalonica. And where do they go to first when they reach the city? Right? Paul's modus of operandi, if you want to call it that. He goes to the synagogue of the Jews. And there because he preaches first to the Jews and then to the Gentile. And so there, for three Sabbaths, he reasons with the Jews, he takes them through Scripture, and he explains the gospel, that Christ was to suffer, that Christ was to raise from the dead. And this Christ, this Messiah, is Jesus of Nazareth. From that gospel proclamation, actually some in that church in Thessalonica come to faith, and they join Paul and Silas. Along with them, there were many devoted Greeks, or what they call God-fearers, and prominent women in the city as well. They came to faith. But of course, as this church and the kingdom is expanding, Satan is not too happy, and so what happens? Some, some Jews in Thessalonica become jealous, and they form a mob with wicked men, and they go looking for Paul and Silas. You can read about the whole account in Acts chapter 17, but ultimately, it leads to Paul and Silas having to leave Thessalonica as well. They've been chased out of Philippi, now they're chased out of Thessalonica, and where do they go? To Berea. And when the Berean Jews here, here, um, you know, receive, receive them, they explain again the scriptures. And we, we know that the Bereans were very good. They studied the scriptures for themselves uh, to find out if this is true, what Paul is saying. Even today, when you're a church or, or, or a person that studies the scriptures well, you, you, you know, you refer to yourself as a good Berean. But the jealous Jews would have none of that, right? They come all the way to Berea and they agitate the crowds. They stir them up so that Paul has to leave again. He leaves Timothy and Silas behind, but now Paul leaves this, uh, uh, Berea too. So he's been chased out of Philippi. He's been chased, but now by the Jews, been chased out of Thessalonica and Berea. And so why do I go in great lengths to tell you the story? Because these same people, these same Jews that chased Paul out of Thessalonica and then Berea, is the people that the Thessalonian church are living amongst, right? The ones that chase Paul out of the city, out of Berea, are the ones that this church of Jesus Christ in Thessalonica are the ones that they live amongst. These people don't want anything to do with Christians. They don't want anything to do with Paul and the gospel. They don't want anything to do with Christ. And so surely if you can picture that, this church amongst those type of people, they're having 
quite a hard time. And we can see that in both 1 Thessalonians and 2, right? In verse 2 verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes that they suffered the same things, the church suffered the same things from their own countrymen as the Judean church did. In our passage this morning in verse 4, we can get a sense of it as Paul says, talks of all their persecutions and in the afflictions that they were enduring. But how do they respond? What perspective does this Thessalonian believers have as they go through trials and suffering? It is clear from our passage that this church has a right perspective, right? One that is steadfast and full of faith, even in the midst of persecution. It says here, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is only fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of each one of you all toward one another increases all the more, so that we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which, and afflictions which you endure. We read that this church wasn't just standing strong, but instead their faith was growing, right? We think, wow, they just need to hold on in the midst of trials and persecutions, but no, their faith is growing. Not only is their faith growing, their love for one another is increasing, and this all the while as they endure persecutions and trials. This is true faith, my friends. In Matthew 13, verse 5, Jesus says, uh, or, or, or shares the, the parable of the sower, and in this particular verse, we read of the seeds that fall on rocky ground. The seeds fall on rocky ground. They don't have much soil, right? And the plants, because of that, spring up quickly. But as the sun comes up, they get scorched. The heat of the sun destroys these plants because they don't have much depth of soil. The heat of persecution, trials, and tribulations destroys shallow faith. The believers in Thessalonian church, though, they didn't have shallow faith. No, their faith is deep-rooted, evidenced by the fact that their faith is growing abundantly in the midst of persecution. Is your faith shallow? Or when you go through hectic times, is your faith growing? When life gets hectic, when you get persecuted on account of the word, how do you respond so it is clear to see that their focus in the moment is right, thus giving the apostle an opportunity to thank God for them. Their focus is right because they are growing in faith. Now, I used to work with this guy. He was a bodybuilder, right? or he used to be at some point. And he would tell me that he was taking this and that supplement, uh, protein shakes. I don't know what he, he, was, he was taking. Hopefully, everything was, was legal. And, and maybe some of you are bodybuilders as well. And not only was he taking supplements, he was also, you know, lifting up weights. Uh, now, I run quite often, right, multiple times a week. Um, but then, no matter how much I run, my arms stay the same. And, you know, right, he, <laughs> my friend told me that, you know, if you want these, uh, I think he used, I'm not sure what he used, but if you want these big guns, you know, you have to focus on the right muscles. And likewise, right, if you want your faith to grow, then you have to have the right focus. You have to be intentional, right? You can't just think, oh, I'm going to grow in faith. Or when trials comes, I'm going to stand strong. No, you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional now as you prepare for future persecution and trials that will come upon the church. 
what exactly does it mean that this church's faith is growing? Are they believing with greater certainty than before? Perhaps, perhaps they are. But also I'm sure their reliance on the Lord is growing, their dependency on Him. And so they trust the Lord through these times. Their faithfulness is evident, even just in these two verses. They are saved by God, and now I'm sure they are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. Their vertical relationship with God is growing, and they were growing in the understanding of Christ's glorious work in their lives, I'm sure. I'm sure they were living out their faith in practical ways. They were reflecting more and more the grace of God to a lost and broken world around them, I'm sure. But now the text doesn't say this specifically, right? But of course, when someone's faith is growing, if your faith is growing, you can't help but reflect more and more the grace and saving power of God through your life. You can't help but reflect the message of the gospel through the way you live and through the way you handle persecutions and trials. As your faith grows, everything changes. Your goals change as you grow in faith. Your desires change as you grow in faith. You, will find, you find fulfillment in different things. You're no longer fulfilled to sit in front of a TV and watch sport and movies and sitcoms for the entire week. No, that doesn't fulfill you. Instead, you want to grow in faith. Perhaps this is also why the Thessalonian church, as they were growing in faith, they, their relationships with each other was changing as well. Right? We see them growing in love. Not only is their vertical relationship with God improving, the horizontal relationship with each other are improving as well. They're growing in love. Do you know that often if you go and join a social club, like a running club, um, you go there, and, and to be honest, I think it's, it's just easy to get along with people because you go there and everyone's running. Or if you go and join a photography club, you go there, everyone's taking um, a photography, um, photos. <laughs> but, um, you know... That's all that is expected. I think if you just don't kill each other, you're meeting the target. Right? You're not called to love each other. Compare this to the church. In the church, we have people of all ages, all classes, all cultures. Even me, I'm from Cape Town. You can hear that. All races. And on top of that yet, despite all of those differences, we're called to love each other. But not just love each other, we call to lay down our lives for one another. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that scary? Isn't that powerful? Love for one another in the church is what should make us so very different to the world. So don't stop. You know, I, I was on these groups uh, that you guys had for uh, care, and especially during COVID. I saw, you know, how you made these meals of love, and I'm sure you're still doing that. Don't stop making those meals of love for one another as, as you go through difficult times, right? Don't let load shedding get in the way. You know, there's no power, and so maybe we think, okay, you know, we can't make this meal for, um, you know, for, for our brother and sister in Christ. But isn't that just a, gr a way to show greater love, that you will overcome stage eight load shedding to make a meal for your brother and sister in Christ? You will get a gas stove or something like that. Don't stop praying with each other. Don't stop visiting the sick and the elderly. Don't stop selflessly giving up of your own time to meet with a brother or sister in Christ, to encourage and fellowship. Because Christian love identifies us as disciples of Jesus. 
And that's why it's very sad when you hear of churches that are divided over simple things. The color of a carpet. Praise the Lord that you have bricks over here. The style of music or what the pastor wore to church. I don't own a suit, so don't judge me. But, hey, Tom, Tom Rain, I don't know who he is, but he had a survey on Twitter and he asked people, what are the silly things that they, you know, you witness them, uh, witness, that people witness churches fight over? And, and this is, you know, it's funny, but it's a sad story. Some of the silly ones were the appropriate length of a worship pastor's beard. Which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer? More ironic than silly. What type of green beans the church should serve? Whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal? Now, that's very funny, but I think you'd agree, agree with me that it's very sad, right? Because Jesus even prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name in John chapter 17, the name of which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And so I'm sure in the Thessalonian church they had differences. I'm sure every church in the history of church had differences. Differences provide an opportunity to show love that is deeper than superficial service-level friendships. They respond in love for one another, likely often giving up their own rights for the rights of their brothers and sisters. Sometimes we should rather be wronged, as Paul writes in another letter, um, for the sake of our brother and sister. In verse 4, we can see that no amount of persecution, no amount of trials, nothing can separate this church from God's love. They are steadfast. Now, I'm not sure if Pastor Jonathan goes to fraternals, but if he did, pastors fraternals, if he did, I'm sure he would go and I'm sure he would be able to boast of this church, of your steadfastness and of your love for one another and the faith in this church. To me, he's only ever said good things, right? But listen, each one of you as individuals, you're going to go home today and you're going to close that door and only you know, you know, what's the truth what you are before God, and are you someone that you know, your leaders can boast of, God's grace working through you. The Thessalonian church were being encouraged that their perseverance and endurance had not gone unnoticed. Despite all the trials, God is still working in them, growing their faith, their love for one another, and their endurance. The attacks of the world cannot separate them from God, and from each other. In fact, the attacks of the enemy do the opposite. The persecution and trials that they face and their godly response to them is evidence of the righteous judgment of God as we read in verse 5. Their faith, their love, and their patient endurance in suffering right, is not for nothing. It proves that God is working and has worked in them. And because God is working in them and he, and he has worked in them and in you, they will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. And your kingdom should be understood as the ultimate kingdom that Christ will establish on his return. In power and glory, God's judgment is right. And so you may ask, okay, they're facing persecution. What about justice, right? What about justice? They are being attacked. They are being persecuted. Some of us maybe are being persecuted. We read of churches all over the world in, in countries where 
you know, there's no freedom for, of, of the gospel proclamation. We hear of churches being attacked. And maybe you're asking that question, where is the justice? As our society becomes more and more anti-Christian, explicitly rejecting biblical views of family, marriage, gender, and whatever else, surely we are to expect more persecution coming our way. Are you ready? You're facing trials, maybe people, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your families. People are, your own families are persecuting you. And you're asking, where is the justice in all of this? Or maybe you, just on an, in another angle, you turn on the news and you hear of this and that crime, this and that assassination. That's what we've been hearing recently, people getting murdered. And it doesn't seem like anyone is being arrested. And if they are arrested, they quickly back out in society again. And we have, you know, we ask the question, where is the justice in this land? Even if you come back to the Thessalonian church, we, you know, we forgive them for asking the same thing. Where is the justice, right? I'm not sure. They probably didn't ask that, but we, you know, we're asking that now. Where is the justice? And that brings me to the next point from verse 6, an eternal perspective. Verse 6 says, Since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give rest to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Amen. This text shows that there is justice, right? But it also makes clear what exactly this justice is. This justice is God's justice. He, will, he, God, will pay back trouble to those who are troubling the church. He not only says what this justice is, but he says when and he says how. God's full and perfect justice will come when? When Christ returns. And then God's enemies will be judged in flaming fire. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And this is not a once-off destruction in the same way that eternal life is not a once-off moment. But it, instead, it's eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord for all eternity, as it says in our text. May this truth be one that actually comforts us in the f when we are faced with the evil injustice of this present age that we so often see. So many of us want justice today, right? My kids, daddy, it's not fair. You know, you gave so-and-so this and you did, uh, you know, daddy, uh, you know, so-and-so didn't get a hiding. Why not? We complain, we grumble, we protest, we fight, and we forget as Christians that true justice, true and lasting justice will come when Christ returns. And he will return. And his return will be glorious. Christians, we should look forward to this day. And we should think about this day. We should keep an eternal perspective. This truth of Jesus' return must be one that lights a fire under us as the church to share the gospel so that people may hear this message of life and turn from their wicked ways 
and turn to the Lord and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I think we can actually see in our priorities, not picking on Livingston, but just as a church in general. We are weak in our proclamation of the gospel. Our actions and our priorities often convey a different reality to one that acknowledges the return of Christ and the coming judgment on God's enemies. Even our complaining and our fight for our own justice and right sometimes reveal a lack in our belief of the true and lasting justice that will come only when Christ returns. That's why a popular message today of the social justice movement that makes justice here and now the central component of, of the Christian message is a sure way to get sidetracked from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Justice for the weak and for the marginalized is important, right? It's, there's biblical truth in that. But we are not called for that to be our central message and our central focus as we go out into the world. As Christians, we must be like the Thessalonian church. We must remind ourselves that true justice only comes when Christ returns, and that is when justice will reign. And so that must spur us on, not to get sidetracked, but to share the gospel so that people may turn from their wicked ways and come to the Lord. And as we do that, of course, we're going to do, um, we're going to love them and we're going to you know, care for the weak and the downtrodden as we are called to in Scripture. It's not only a true justice that's coming, but a lasting justice. Verse 8 says, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destructions. Now, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our witness to you was believed. So there's two elements here, right? There's an element of God's enemies will be punished. And there's an element of that those who are his will marvel at him one day. And so the first one is that those who are against Christ's church will be punished. Not just the ones of punishment, but with everlasting destruction. They will shut out, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. And so what does this say? Don't mess with his bride. Don't mess with the church. As a church, we can be comforted by the fact that Christ's love for his church is so much that he would put forth his very life for his bride. It is a special love. It is a unique love. A love like no other. It's a love that is eternal, that can never be broken. Husbands, yeah, who of you will sit down and watch someone come and attack your wife? You'd never do that, right? You'd never let that happen. Those who mess with his church are messing with the bridegroom's bride. God's enemies have a faithful judgment ahead. And if they do not repent, right? They're in trouble because God is just and justice will reign. Let's also take this as a warning even to, to us as Christians or, or those of us who, are, who believe. But as church, be warned, right? Don't mess with ourselves. Don't mess with the church. Don't mess with each other. Don't slander, right? Take it serious. Don't gossip. Don't badmouth, right? Even when we're tempted, everyone is, is tempted to do that at some point. Don't mess with the church. Don't have bitterness in your heart 
with each other and grumble and complain because Jesus loves his church and he loves you if you're a true believer. He will not let you continue in that behavior. He will discipline those he loves. And so rather instead, grow in love, grow in faith, grow in love for one another, sacrificing your rights for the sake of the rights of your brother and sister in Christ. So the first element that I mentioned was that those who are against Christ will be punished. But the second is that those who are Christ have something to look forward to. On that day, when men who rejected Christ and uh, you know, came against his church, they will be judged. But those who are Jesus's will marvel at him. Oh, what a great, great, glorious sight this would be to behold. Just picture it. Millions and millions of people from across all the ages, across all the cultures, nations, races, will marvel at him who is the very head of, or, you know, over the church, who is powerful over every power and authority. We will marvel at him who is the fullness of deity, in whom the fullness of deity in bodily form lives. We will marvel at him who created all things. We will marvel at him who has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. We will marvel at him who is our great high priest. We will marvel at him who is the glorious king of kings. We will marvel at him who is the lion of Judah. But you know what? We will marvel at him who is the lamb of God. He who had all the glory of heaven at his disposal left that so that he would come in full obedience to the Father and be nailed to the cross so that he could pay for our sin. We will marvel at him. Are you excited about that? Are you excited? Are you looking forward to that day when all those who are his will marvel at the glory and the splendor of Jesus? If you're not marveling today, you're not going to marvel then right? And so which side will you be on on that day? Friends, I ask you this morning, if you don't believe in the Lamb of God who died to take away your sins and who was raised in power, repent. I ask you, repent. Turn away from your sin and to the living God and be amongst those who one day, when Jesus returns, will marvel and will glorify him at his return. It's on that day when justice will reign. Keep this in mind. Let this truth of the glorious return of Christ drive you to lay aside the things of the world and instead to pour out all of your being for his glory. This brings us to, my, to the last point from verse 11 to 12, a perspective for prayer. To this end also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill all your good pleasure for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul pray for? Yeah. Paul prays that God might make these Christians worthy of their calling. That is, that they may live up to their calling. In Ephesians, we know Paul says, you know, we are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. It also says that Christians are 
you know, as Christians, we are predestined to be adoption as sons. And we know, you know all of the truth of our calling in Christ and who we are in Christ. Uh, this is what he, we are to live, w- being worthy of, of our calling. And so imagine a king's son, right? He goes and lives on the street. He's still the king's son. Nothing he, he does will, will change the fact that he's, he's the king's son. But oh, how foolish it would be that, you know, that king's son, despite everything he has, now chooses a life, you know, uh, of homelessness. What a bad choice. And so the king would go to him and say, listen, my son, stop being foolish. You are my son. Live like it. Now, God has adopted us into his family. We are his children, and we must live like we are his children. How much more effective is God's call than the call of a human king? Sometimes the problem is, is, is that we live with wrong thinking, right? Wrong perspectives. Other times it's outward sin and rebellion, and we live like homeless children of the king. If you are far from him, if you are living a rebellious lifestyle, we must repent before his discipline comes. We must come home because we must live a life that's worthy of our calling. We must live a life that is fit for a child of the king. What is the focus of 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 the prayers of the apostle. What is clear here is that in our prayers, we must focus on what is important. The church is facing severe trials. We don't know exactly what they were, but they're facing trials and afflictions. What does the apostle Paul pray for? He prays that the church would live up to their calling. He prays that they will continue to live a fruitful life. He thanks God for their, for their love and their faith. He prays that they will live, they will continue to live a fruitful life. Why? So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in them. He prays with the end in mind. The apostle's writing here says a lot about where our focus should be, right? Because he doesn't pray for their persecution to cease. He doesn't pray for their trials to stop. Our conviction of the return of Christ and kingdom values must inform our prayers. It must drive us to pray and affect what we pray about. What do we focus on in our prayers? Both personally, with our families and in church meetings, prayer meetings, is our main focus good health, business success, church finances, or our own finances? Of course, we want the best for everyone, right? We, we We do want to bring daily things before the Lord. But the main characteristic of our prayers should be with eternity in mind. You know, what is God doing in us as we go through trials and as we go through life? Do we keep God's concerns as central? Do we pray as Christians with the end in mind, with Jesus' return in mind? I want to share a story as part of the conclusion. In 1952, there was a lady by the name of Florence Chadwick. Does anybody know who Florence Chadwick is? Good, so it's the first time you hear the story. She attempted to swim the Catalina Channel. Now that is a r- roughly 32-kilometer swim all the way from the Catalina Island shore to the shore of mainland California. Now she wasn't a novice. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. But on this day... The weather was foggy and chilly on the day she set out. 
She could hardly see the boat that was accompanying her. She swam for 15 hours. And while she swam, she begged to be taken out. But her trainer urged her, just, you know, one more uh, swim. Just continue going, continue going, reassuring her that she could make it. And that the shore was not too far away. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she just stopped swimming. She was pulled out of the water, got into the boat, and she was horrified to learn that the shore was one kilometer away. How sad. She couldn't see it. It was too foggy. The next day in a media or news conference, she, said, she basically said, if, if she could have seen the shore, she would have swam that one kilometer. She would have made it. And this proved to be the case because she attempted it again, that time on a clear day, and she made it to the end. Right? She, once she had the end in mind, once she, had the, she could see the end, once she could make the swim, once we can see in our mind that Jesus is coming back, oh, how will it affect we live even today? As a Christian, we need a right perspective and a right focus. We need to focus on what is God's focus. We have to concern ourselves with God's concerns. When Jesus repeated in Mark 8, what did he say? You do not have, in Mark 8, he said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Do we have merely human concerns, concerns of today? Or do we keep in mind and in sight the end of this age? You know, around 19 years ago, I walked into the university chapel, and there was a guy bowed down in front of the chapel. He was broken. He was crying in absolute tears, and he was worshiping. And as he worshipped in song, his voice whimpered. He could hardly sing the words as he was crying. I'll never forget that moment. That young man had lost his mom just earlier in the week to a stray bullet while she was in her own home. I don't know how on earth he managed to sing. I'm not sure exactly. I, I think the song he was singing was, I lift my hands to the coming king. I just know I was moved incredibly by that, that experience. Surely the truth of Christ's return, that justice will, will take place one day, and the fact that one day all his saints will marvel together at his glory would be a comfort for a man like that. We pray that, you know, all of us, that we would be able to sing even in the midst of severe trials, that we'd be able to worship, right? And that one day, right, that we will marvel at his glory too. Friends, like Florence Chadwick, the swimmer, we must also have the end goal in sight. We must have a clear vision of Christ and his glory that drives us onward and upward in our faith, that drives us to sacrifice, that drives us to love, that drives us as a church to mission, that drives us in our prayers, that drives us to live lives that are worthy of our calling in Christ. We must have this eternal perspective. Like a wise man who plans for the future, we must keep in the end in mind. We must see the shore that is before us and swim and swim until we reach the end, even in choppy waters and foggy skies. Amen. Let me close in a, in a word of prayer. Uh, Pastor Jonathan will come up and share the benediction with you.
Dear God, we thank you so much for your encouraging word that encourages us, Lord, that even while we face um, afflictions and trials in this age, that our faith is to grow and our love for you is to grow and our love for one another is to grow. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to go shouting for justice now because, Lord, one day you will return and the enemies of God will be judged. And, Lord, we on that day who believe in you will be marveling at the glory and splendor of the Son. Oh, Lord, let the truth of the return of Jesus Christ the King light a fire under us so that we will be passionate about taking the message of the gospel to the ends of the world so that those, Lord, who don't know of it will turn from their wicked ways and they will come to obedience of the gospel. Lord, help it to change everything. Help it to change us, the way we think, the way we behave, and Lord, the way we even pray, that we will pray with the end and eternity in our minds, Lord as we pray for one another. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy and your goodness towards us, even when we don't deserve it. And we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who we love. Amen.